Welcome to Faith Baptist Church, Great Village, where we believe in the truth of the gospel, building of community, and engaging in the mission of Christ. We hope you enjoy this week's message as our pastors share from God's Word. So yeah, so you guys are all doing well? Yeah, sorry I'm late. I'm preaching, right? <laughs> nah, I'm just kidding. Don't worry about it. I know I'm preaching. Anyway... What are you guys looking at? <laughs> this jacket? Yeah. Oh, these books? This bag of sweet cash? <laughs> Listen. Or the shorts, I guess. Thanks, Mom. <laughs> well, I mean, if I've been doing a preaching course with Steve and a couple of other guys, and if I've learned anything, it's that you got to be likable in order for people to actually listen to you. And I thought, what better way to be likable than to wear a sweet jacket? or to have a ton of money. I got talons, shekels, uh, Spanish talons, I don't know what they're called. And uh, yeah, and all these books, because you know what they say, if someone's got books, uh, they're smart and they know what they're talking about, which I clearly do. Uh, and you might say like, oh, you're wearing a jacket, it's too hot? Pff, who cares, style's more important bag of money in a place of worship, uh, it seems a little over the top. Well, I think I'm just cool for it. And all these books, what's the point? Who cares? Anyway, enough about me. Let me get to the message. Yeah, I got nothing prepared. <laughs> you know, another thing that I learned throughout the time that uh, we were spending time together doing preaching is that you just got to show up and go let God do the rest. So that's what I'm doing here. That's what we're doing here today. So I'll just sit and wait, I suppose. You know what they say, wisdom is less precious than rubies and certainly less precious than a sweet bag of cash. Anyway, to the sermon. So, Solomon, he was the first Prime Minister of Canada. No, that wasn't him. Uh, Solomon, born to a lowly farmer, 16th President of the United States, boom, Emancipation Proclamation. That's it, that's Solomon. No, that's not him either. Is it in one of these books? Wait, what's this? Wisdom is more precious than rubies? Oh my goodness, how dumb am I? I've been living off this motto I thought I read somewhere for the longest time. I don't know what I'm gonna do. I guess I'm just gonna have to pull out the sermon I spent countless hours preparing. <laughs> I just wish I had a, an outside perspective to, for someone to show me how uh, stupid I was really being. Anyway, sorry, did I fall asleep there? So today we're gonna to be talking about wisdom. Let me take this jacket off. It is very warm. 
man, why didn't any of you tell me what I was doing? Oh, I don't know what I'm going to do with this bag of money or all these books. I'll just put them on the chair. Ugh. So, today we're going to be talking about wisdom. And wisdom is something that has always enticed me. Uh, the definition in a Christian context is something that I've always pondered. And I mean, I guess the opposite of wisdom was pretty well shown in uh, what just happened. But for wisdom itself, as the Oxford English Dictionary says, my favorite English dictionary, it says the ability to be sensible or to make sensible decisions and to give good advice because of the experience and knowledge that you have or the knowledge that a society or a culture has gained over a long period of time. So it seems pretty apt, but uh, what does this actually look like in practice? That's kind of what we're going to explore today. So God has wisdom, or has modeled wisdom for many times in the Bible. Uh, the books of wisdom are the best documentations of wisdom that we have. Uh, and probably the most notable example in history, aside from Christ, and the protagonist of today's story, is King Solomon. And before I go on, I am going to be talking about Solomon and David, and I may not cast them in the best light um, today, but uh, I want to say that we're all sinners, and we all fall short. And every sin uh, to God is the exact same, and he has the power to forgive us for all of them. So even though I might be talking a little bit of smack about Solomon and David, uh, I'm definitely not better than them. Not even close. And I certainly don't live up to God, as it says, we all fall short we all, we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. But uh, moving on, um, uh, yeah, the protagonist today is King Solomon. And in 1 Kings 4:32 to 34, it says of Solomon, he spoke 3,000 proverbs and songs numbered 1,005. He spoke about plant life from the cedar of Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out the walls. He also spoke about animals and birds, reptiles and fish. From all nations, people came to hear Solomon's wisdom, sent by all the kings of the world who had heard of his wisdom. So many of these Proverbs are recorded in the book of Proverbs, not all of them, unfortunately, and uh, um, he, oh, the only song that Solomon wrote that is recorded is uh, the Song of Solomon, and Solomon also wrote Ecclesiastes. Uh, his recording of wisdom is extensive and one of the best representations that we have of God-given wisdom. He was meticulous and creative, and he was truly gifted by God. Next week, Jay is going to be talking about Ecclesiastes and the hard but joyful truths that come in that book. Um, but for today, I'd like to share with you all about Solomon, his rise, his fall, and what we can learn from it. But I want to start off with Proverbs 7, and I really want you to think about it as I stand before you today. So, Proverbs 7. This is a proverb of Solomon. He was speaking to his son, trying to impart a bit of wisdom on him early in the Proverbs. So here's what it says. At the window of my house, I looked down through the lattice. I saw among the simple, I noticed among the young men, a youth who had no sense. He was going down the street near corners, walking along in the direction of her house. At twilight, as the day was fading, as the dark of night set in, then came out a woman to meet him, dressed like a prostitute with crafty intent. She is unruly and defiant, her feet never stay at home. Now in the street, now in the square, at every corner she lurks. She took hold of him and kissed him, and with a brazen face she said, Today I fulfilled my vows, and I have food from my fellowship offering at home. So I came out to meet you. I looked for you, and I found you. I have covered my bed with colored linens from Egypt. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. So come, let's drink deeply of love till morning. Let's enjoy ourselves with love. My husband is not home. He has gone on a long journey. He took his purse filled with money and will not be home till full moon. 
With persuasive words, she led him astray. She seduced him with her smooth talk. All at once he followed her like an ox, going to the slaughter, like a deer stepping into a noose, till an arrow pierced his liver, like a bird darting into a snare, little knowing that it would cost him his life. Now then, my sons, listen to me. Pay attention to what I say. Do not let your hearts turn her ways or stray from her paths, onto her paths. Many are victims she has brought down. Her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is a highway to the grave, leading down the chambers of death. So again, I want you to kind of consider this uh, story about Solomon, uh, or this, this story, while I tell you about Solomon. Oh my gosh, I'm having a rough morning, aren't I? Just keep falling asleep up here. Uh, so let me give you a little bit of background of the kind of kingdom that uh, Solomon inherited and what he was coming into. So King David had 19 sons. The first son was Amnon, and Amnon was murdered by David's third son, Absalom, after he raped uh, David's daughter. And then Absalom went on to be killed by Joab, the general of David's army, after Absalom tried to overthrow the throne. So there we have it. Right off the bat, two of David's sons are out of the picture. So David has his first son, Amnon, second son, Kiliab, who likely died young, and his third son, Absalom, all tr- uh, are all passed away. So David is left with his fourth son, Adoniah. And that's where our story today begins. So, after the death of David's first three sons, uh, Absalom figures, hey, it's my turn to be king, right? Which traditionally makes sense. He's, fourth, or he's uh, the fourth in line, and all the rest aren't able to be kings. Uh, so traditionally, this makes a lot of sense. But uh, he failed to account for the fact that um, the Lord, remember, God of all creation, told David that he was to choose Solomon, the fourth son of Bathsheba, to be the next king of Israel. And he promises Solomon will be blessed throughout his reign with peace on all sides. So as David nears the end of his life, Adonai figures, hey, it's my time to shine. So Adonai pulls as many officials together as he can, one of which is Joab. He gets as many sheep, cows, and fattened calf as he can, uh, and he begins the process of being sworn in as king. And notably, though Adonai invited all of Solomon's brothers, uh, Solomon was not invited. Neither was Nathan the prophet or a couple of other loyal officials, or officials loyal to David. Uh, so Nathan hears about this and he goes directly to Bathsheba, Solomon's mother, to tell him exactly what had happened. And if you'll remember, David and or Solomon or Nathan and Bathsheba, oh my goodness, Nathan and Bathsheba have an interesting and important relationship, as Nathan was the one to rebuke David for what he did to her and Uriah. Uh, he's definitely got a bit of uh, you know her best interest in mind, but most importantly, he's got the best interest of God's kingdom in mind. So, uh, and part of God's kingdom, part of God's plan, is to have Solomon as the next king. So, he comes up with this plan, and here's how the plan goes. So, Nathan knows how David works, and he's doing this to safeguard his kingdom. Uh, So, what what happens is Bathsheba enters the king's room and says, David, David, listen, honey, sweetie, please, these guys, they're up on the hill. Uh, your son, he's taken over the throne. He's being anointed. How could you do this? You promised that Solomon uh, would take over. My son would take over after you. But then Adonai is up on the hill doing his own thing with all his croonies. Uh, what's going on? And then while she was doing that, Nathan burst on in, interrupting her and, and told his part of the story. And David was like, this is not good. 
I can't mess this part up. This is really important. This is directly what God said, and Solomon definitely needs to be king because I'm already kind of in trouble with Nathan and God after the whole Bathsheba thing, so I better get this, uh, bet this, get this thing together. So after this, David is convinced. He returns Bathsheba to the room, promises that on that day, Solomon shall be crowned king. So their plan was a success. I think it's pretty clever of Nathan, personally. Uh, he needed David to listen and do the right thing before something bad happened again. So the king calls Solomon in, has him mount the royal mule, uh, and has him anointed king over Israel and Judah by Zadok the priest at Gion, which is a, a high place. Um, David's loyal men blow trumpets and shout, Long live King Solomon! Then David has Solomon sit on his very own throne. All of those in the city followed Solomon to Gion and played pipes and shouted so much that it is recorded that the ground shook with the sound. Uh, Solomon chooses to spare Adonai initially, but after David dies, Adonai still thinks he's all that in a bag of chips. So he goes up to Solomon and says, hey, you know uh, your dad's, uh, our dad's end-of-life caretaker? Yeah, can I have him as, can I have her as a wife? And that's kind of treason, because he's not all that in a bag of chips anymore. He's, uh, he, he's not really, he's not on the throne, he's not really much of anything anymore. So this is a bit of a capital offense, so um, Ad, uh, Solomon chooses to uh, uh, kill him for this being treason. But uh, before that, as David's life comes to a close, uh, he imparts a bit of advice on Solomon, and he charges him with a bit of housekeeping. By housekeeping, I mean killing everyone that betrayed David, i.e. Joab and a couple of jerks. Uh, so uh, Solomon swiftly and justly took care of these people, and uh, now he's fully established on the throne. So there we have it, about 15 years old. We've got little average, little tiny little baby Solomon, who's just uh, the son of not even, not even the proper next in line of the throne. And now he's suddenly King Solomon, the firmly established ruler of Israel and Judah, of God's people. I mean, what a mess, eh? What a disaster coming in, having to purge the whole kingdom after it being trying to be overthrown twice. I mean, come on, can you imagine yourself at 15? be a disaster. I mean, well, not for me. I mean, maybe I couldn't have driven back then, but maybe I couldn't have voted. Maybe I couldn't have uh, done anything. Maybe I wasn't even an adult, but uh, I was the very model of a modern major general. I could pull it off, I'm sure. Regardless, in the case of Solomon, he needed help. Uh, he did not have a father to turn to, so he looked to God. So God visits Solomon in a dream as he's making a sacrifice at the most important high place. This is Gibeon. Uh, he told Solomon, ask for whatever you want for me, and I will give it to you. What would you ask for? For me? I don't really know. I went back and forth with things that I should uh, say to you that I wanted, lest I sound like an arrogant jerk. Uh, but, you know, to be entered into the kingdom of heaven, like immediately, that's, that's a good one, I think. To have enough wealth to end world hunger, like that's another good one, probably. End all wars, like... These are, all, these are all kind of the ideas that popped into my head. I mean, what would you do? Anything. God's like, this is a genie. This is a blank check for Solomon. Um, and it's quite overwhelming, I would say, especially in Solomon's case. But Solomon gave a pretty interesting answer, in my opinion, anyway. Let me read it to you. It says, Solomon answered, You have shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. You have continued his great kindness to him and have given him a son to sit on the throne this very day. Now, Lord my God, 
I have made your servant king in place of my father David, but I am only a little child, and I do not know how to carry on my duties. Your servant is here among the people you've chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or even number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? That's quite the answer, huh? It's probably not something that I would have said, honestly. Uh, it's pretty level-headed for a 15-year-old. And it seems like God thought so, too. It's pretty aligned with what God's plan was. And you can see that in God's response. God says, The Lord was pleased that Solomon asked for this. So God said to him, Since you have asked for this and not for a long life or for wealth for yourself, nor have you asked for the for death of your enemies, but for discernment in administering justice, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart, so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Wow, that's quite the promise. So suddenly Solomon goes from this messy place coming in to this really excellent place of God ordination, of wisdom, uh, to begin his administration. He has this abundance of God-given wisdom and the promise of prosperity, and through his authority, Solomon lives a life of immense wealth and peace on all sides, just as God promised. Uh, as it says here in 1 Kings 4, to 25, it says, Solomon's daily provisions were 30 cores of the finest flour and 60 cores of meal. These are like around 50 tons as a core, so this is quite a lot. Uh, 10 heads of stall-fed cattle, 20 of pasture-fed cattle, and 100 sheep uh, and goats, as well as deer, gazelles, roebuck, and choice fowl. For he ruled over the kingdoms of west of the Euphrates River, from Tiphash to Gaza, and had peace on all sides. During Solomon's lifetime, Judah and Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, lived in safety, everyone under their own vine and under their own fig tree. So people came from all over to witness Solomon's wisdom. And let me tell you an example of, uh, uh, of scripture, of this wisdom that I find pretty entertaining. And this is kind of a little bit beside the point, but this is uh, part of the scripture. So I'm just going to tell this story for you. So Solomon's sitting on his throne, right? He's got, I'm sure, his scepter. This throne it talks about in scripture is so majestic. It's crazy, covered in gold. And these two women come in. And they're, uh, they're actually prostitutes, and they live together. And they recently had, each had one son. They live in the same house. And the first one comes up to Solomon, and he's like... Solomon, 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 Solomon. Uh, I had a son, she had a son, uh, but now one son's dead. It was her son. She went in, she switched as if it was me that killed his son, uh, but that's not what happened. It was my son, and now she's trying to take my son. I don't know what to do. And the other woman walks in, and she's like, no, that was my son the whole time. And, Solomon, and they start bickering back and forth, and it's really becoming heated, and oh my goodness. Solomon's like, okay, you're fighting. Let me handle this go get my sword. And he gets one of his men to bring in his sword. And he's like, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to cut the baby in half. Both of you get a baby. <laughs> that's, pretty, that's insane. <laughs> but the first one was like, no, 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 no. Uh, just give her the baby, please. Just whatever you do, just let the baby live. And the other woman was like, fine. If I can't have the baby, no one can. Cut it in half. And Solomon's like, bap, got you there. It's the first woman's baby. Hand it over. We're not cutting it in half. Both of you get out of here. That's a, that's pretty nuts. <laughs> it's an interesting, uh, interesting wisdom though. I probably wouldn't have thought of 
threatening to cut the baby in half in order to figure out who, who, uh, whose baby it was. But that's the kind of uh, wisdom that people came to uh, know and love in Solomon. So, um, but it is pretty smart. It's pretty clever. Um, and like I said, it's probably not something I would have come up with. Probably not some, something any of you would come up with unless you're like super wise and um, you're in a position where two women are fighting over a baby. I don't know. Whatever. So, moving on, I just wanted to tell that story because I figured uh, Solomon's wisdom wouldn't be complete with that story. Anyway, Solomon forms many alliances as king, most notably with the contemporary pharaoh of Egypt. He marries his daughter and brings her to Israel as to form a formal alliance. And Solomon imports many animals and precious items from Egypt and from the many kingdoms surrounding Israel. With all of Solomon's wealth and peace, two things his father lacked during his reign, he is commissioned to build a temple in the name of the Lord as God requires him. So I think Steve's, Steve or Josh, I can't remember, is going to be talking about the temple in the next couple weeks, so I'm not really going to talk about that. But after he finishes the temple, God visits him a second time and he says, I have heard the prayer and plea that you've made before me. I have consecrated this temple which you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. As for you, if you walk before me faithfully with integrity of heart and uprightness, as your father David did, and do all I command and observe my decrees and laws, I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised David your father when I said, you shall never fail to have a successor on the throne of Israel. But if you or your descendants turn away from me and do not observe my commands and decrees as I have given to you, and go off and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land I have given to them, and I will reject this temple I have consecrated for my name. Israel will become a byword and an object of ridicule among the peoples. This temple will become a heap of rubble. All who pass by will be appalled and will scoff and say, Why has the Lord done such a thing to this land and to the temple? People will answer, Because they have forsaken the Lord their God, who brought out ancestors of Egypt and embraced their God, other gods, worshiping and serving them. That is why the Lord brought all this disaster on, on them. So, I'm just going to drink a water here. I'm a little parched. Solomon amasses great wisdom and wealth, likes of which, as scripture says, the world has never seen. Tons and tons of gold, uh, incense and precious items, as well as a whole bunch of animals, as we talked about. He imported much of this wealth from Egypt, uh, and, he, and uh, throughout Solomon's life, he goes on to marry a total of 700 wives and 300 concubines. I mean, concubines are essentially uh, wives in every way, except uh, they're not royal or Israelites. Uh, so, essentially, a thousand wives. Um, sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> eh? <laughs> That's a lot. Uh, <laughs> many of these wives were foreign and non-Israelites, which God had actually prohibited for the people of Israel. God did this with a warning that foreign women would turn them towards other gods. Uh, as it says in Deuteronomy 17, it says, When you enter the land of the Lord, your God, or enter the land of the Lord your God is giving you, and have taken possession of it, and settled in it, and as you say, let us set a king over Israel like all the nations around us, be sure to appoint over you a king, uh, a king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from your fellow Israelites. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not an Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. 
he must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. Solomon, uh, however, tried to be really good to these wives, despite how many he had. Um, but of course, that's not really possible. A thousand wives, it's only 365 days in a year. Uh, I'm sure some of them felt, probably most of them actually felt, pretty neglected. Um, but nonetheless, he went to great lengths to satisfy them, considering how many he had, uh, to make up for how many, I think. Um, this caused him to be pulled in many different directions to please his wives and concubines. And as Solomon ages, we start to see him compromising for them. The Bible says his heart stopped being fully devoted to God. And he built places of worship to appease uh, his wives, places of worship for the gods that they served. This greatly displeased the Lord and led him to make this statement to Solomon. Since this is your attitude and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Nevertheless, for the sake of David your father, I won't do this during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hands of your son. Yet I will not tear the whole kingdom from him, but I will give him one tribe for the sake of David my servant and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. Does this whole story sound familiar? You guys remember that proverb about the woman? Solomon was that man led astray. He just couldn't see it. It's ironic. So God allows adversaries to rise up against Israel and it all ended in the kingdom being split between Solomon's servants, one of Solomon's servants who took Israel and Solomon's son who became king of only Judah. So I mean, there it is. The tragedy of Solomon, a man who had the most wisdom and wealth of anyone who had ever lived and whoever will live. Powerful beyond measure while he stayed in devotion to God and while he was in devotion to God, he lavished with peace throughout his life. But he threw that all away. He turned his heart from God towards other gods after God had given him all the riches and all that wisdom. But how could he do that? You may have noticed that up until now, I've kind of strayed away from giving commentary. I've left it um, very much as a narrative. Uh, but I'm going to start giving a little bit of uh, commentary now. The reason I did this was for the same reason that I can say that Solomon, coming into this, Solomon was my favorite king of Israel. But the key word is was. You see, I wanted to preach on him because he was my favorite king of Israel. Because I was mesmerized, as I said, of the concept of wisdom. Uh, and Solomon recorded vast wisdoms as he himself is a written testimony of wisdom, especially in his early life. I pray often that God would give me this wisdom in order to be a good Christian and to lead um, as I'm sure God has called me to. But the more I studied Solomon and the kingdom that he was left with after David's reign, the more sad, the more upset, and the more frankly disheartened I became. And I wrestled with this a lot you know, I felt bad for Solomon because of David's poor fathering, as scripture alludes to a little bit. And it was also upsetting that Solomon's failure to be the king and the follower of God that he could have been. I found it so sad and demoralizing. I mean, Solomon was literally born in a relationship that initially was made of an awful sin and scandal. David and Bathsheba. That relationship, even since David preached on it, has been weighing so heavily. And I've been wrestling with it and going back and forth on the verge of tears. It's so upsetting. I mean, Bathsheba didn't seduce David. She was 
cleaning herself after her period. She was probably clothed. It would have been a shame. It would have been shame for her if she wasn't. She was on the roof. She didn't want anyone to see her. But David decided to take her and do what he wanted to her. That's weighing so heavily on me. But what choice did she have? I mean, husbands, I want you to think of your wives and daughters, sons. Think of your sisters and mothers. What if they were put in this position? Of a man of power saying that you do this or else. Or else I threaten your life, I threaten your honor, I threaten your family. You might even go to jail in Bathsheba's case or be stoned. What choice did she have? It was an honor for her to sleep with the king. She was married to a good military man. This rings too familiar in days like today with the advent of the stuff like the Me Too movement. And, you know, we have names. We hear names all the time, and we think of men of power using women, not in power. Let me give you a couple names. Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky, a man of power. Let me give you a couple of other names in the Me Too movement. Harvey Weinstein, Matt Lauer, men of power, abusing it. This is so upsetting. And this is hard because we love David. We see him as the protector and really the founder of a godly Israel, but how could he do these things? It's upsetting, and this is just real life. This brings him, we can't be putting him on a pedestal because he's just a man. Furthermore, there's evidence to suggest that he was even a neglectful father, even of Solomon. Scripture tells us that he didn't punish Amnon for raping his daughter, and he didn't punish Absalom for the murder of Amnon. We're also told that Adonai acted the way he did because... And I quote here, his father never rebuked him by asking, why do you behave as you do? Some research even indicate that, as I said before, Solomon might not have even been raised by his father at all, but rather by Nathan the prophet until David actually had to give some advice and pass on the throne. Why was he like this? After all, he was a man after God's own heart. As for Solomon, it boggles my mind that such a man of wisdom, literally God-given wisdom, could not save him from turning his heart away from God. But why? All of this wisdom. He literally spoke about uh, a young man and a woman just like him, but he still couldn't see it. His eyes weren't open to it. But how? Isn't wisdom supposed to protect from this sort of thing? This is the thing that I wrestled with throughout the last couple weeks of preparation. I didn't know what I was gonna say when I came up here because these truths, the fact of David is so disheartening and so upsetting and with Solomon, his wisdom, it couldn't save him. I brought this up to a mentor of mine. He lives in PEI now and you know, he gave me a really good example of this in modern times, and this has been in the news recently. He said that we often think of wisdom and human traits as infallible and surefire. He brought up Willow Creek. I don't know if you have all heard of this. Willow Creek is a megachurch, an association in the States that trains people all over the world for leadership and mission and being the people that uh, God calls them to be. But about a year ago, their founder and lead pastor, uh, Jim Hybels, uh, took an early retirement, and the leadership of the church came together to address what had happened. 
You see, his retirement came after uh, publication in the local uh, journal uh, exposing Heibel's misconduct. Essentially, the organization and the leaders handled the situation in the worst possible way. Some of them jumped shipped early because they realized what, what they were doing, but many of them stayed. And eventually, last fall, they all left when they realized that they were backing the wrong horse. They had the sense of protectionism and the sense of uh, uh, lacking transparency uh, to protect Hybels and to protect face. Led to the complete overhaul of the elders board and a separate investigation is launched and is ongoing. But how? This church had all the people of the best wisdom, the most upright, uh, God-loving people they were wise, they were leaders, they were compassionate, caring, smart. But they still failed. Wisest, smartest, and the best leaders failed to do what, it was, what was right. And I mean, they're currently in the process of reconciliation and moving forward, but how could such a thing fail so badly? How could they do this? Like in Solomon's case, like in David's case, the reliance on human ability alone proves to be flawed, and the reverence of mere humans proves to be unstable. Wisdom does not save and protect, for only God can. And these points echo throughout Scripture, from Adam to Eve, even to you and I, our wisdom, our power alone, no matter what, is not enough on its own. We need an outside perspective, one that I could have used at the beginning of this. <laughs> we need to align our vision to God's and he will bless us. Even at the beginning of Solomon's life, he was aligning his vision with God's wisdom to prosper this great people of yours, of God's. But it's when he started to ignore God's direction that he fell away. It's not even enough to look at people as role models. David is not a good role model as much as we like to think he is. He's not Jesus. We put him up on this pedestal and it's so easy. He did so many great things. We fall into a trap of thinking that the Bible is just a book about good people. But in fact, it's a book about a God who works in wonderful ways through people. David was not a good role model, father, or as a husband. Solomon was not a good role model for his enduring faith or for being a good husband. But we have someone who is. It's not like we don't have it. We have Jesus Christ. We have God. He is caring and loving, the perfect father. But he's also stern in teaching as Steve talked about in Psalm 23. But we can see little aspects of God in people, but we can't let ourselves be distracted by the people and model our lives after them, but we ought to choose to model our lives after our Creator and our Savior. We have extensive documentation of God and how He moves and Jesus and who He is. And I think the best thing that we can do in our personal time is to get to know God and who he is through all of these accounts. Not to search for role models and imperfect people, but to get to know God and to search for him as a role model. The perfect role model. 
And even then, I think we ought to see the parts of people that God is working through. That's how we should view people, not through their flaws, but the way that we see David. We look at the good in him. That's how we should look at others. We don't get to excuse the bad things, but we can learn from them. And if we look at the goodness in people, if we are constantly looking for how God is shining through them, how God could work through them, the better off I think we'll be. I mean, don't get me wrong. I find it so hard not to be cynical. I found myself so upset at David and at Solomon for the things that they did. But for God, God sees all sins as equal. He looks down and he sees the sins that David committed as the same as the sins that we committed day after day after day and we continue to commit. No matter the sin, he is powerful and he can forgive. As scripture says, we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. But if we look for the Lord and people, I mean in everything for that matter, it'll be easier to love them, which is what Jesus calls us to do. The point that I want to send you home with are that we need an outside perspective. We need God. God is already looking down on us. Jesus Christ is already in our hearts. If we believe in God, we are already filled with the Holy Spirit. So we need to use that. We need to use that outside perspective. We need to be like Solomon was looking down, but on our own life. We need to call for God to do that within us. Because human traits aren't enough. Human wisdom is not enough. The second thing is that God is the best role model. Extensively throughout scripture, we have examples of this, examples of God working through people. And that's amazing. It's extensive. It's full. We get to know exactly who God is. The more I read about him, the more excited I get. He loves us. Why? I don't know. But he does. Through all of our failures, through all of our sins, he loves us. He loves David. He loves Solomon. He loves me and he loves you. He is the best role model. The perfect father. Thirdly, God works through people. Whether they know it or not, we need to be looking out for that. We need to see the way that God works through them like we see through David, like we see early in Solomon's life, like we see in all of your lives, how God is using you. And when we do that, we can look at people and see them the way that God sees them, in his image. Fourthly, that's not a word. Fourth, <laughs> furthermore, moreover, we need to see God in people. And we need to understand that sins are all equal and love them. And lastly, we need to apply what God says in the Bible throughout the lives of all these people. We need to apply this throughout our lives. We can't just leave this on Sundays. Applying this is looking for the best in people, is finding what God is doing in them and learning from it or learning because of it and then using it in your own life, in our own life. 
We must live off the example of Christ alone, of God alone. They are the perfect models. We ought to take aspects for them. And though we will never be perfect, for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, I think it's worth a try. In God's name, will you stand and pray with me? God, I thank you for this time we can come together in fellowship, Lord. I thank you for this opportunity to learn about the people, God, that you place in scripture, in the book that you breathe into, that you breathe life into, God. We're so grateful for you. We're so grateful for the love that you have, God, and we're so grateful that you sent your son to be the perfect role model here on earth for us. God, and I pray that as we go on, Lord, as we depart today, that we would take that knowledge, Lord, that we would take uh, the knowledge that you sent your son and that we would use him as a role model. God, I pray that we would look for the best in each other. Lord, and I pray that we would live out our lives to the best of our abilities, God, and love each other while understanding that all sins are equal, God. God, we're all made in your image and we're so grateful, Lord, that you love us no matter what we do. We thank you for these examples of people and God, I pray that you'll keep us away from putting people on, pedestal, on pedestals, God, because only you, Lord. I thank you for this time, Lord. I thank you for this time of praise, a celebration this Sunday morning, God, and I pray that you would bless over all of us uh, into the next week and as we depart from this place. In your precious name we pray, amen.